Welcome to another edition of Surgeons Lives. Uh, I'm your host, uh, John Monson. Today we're going to meet uh, someone who is a real pathfinder and powerhouse in the world of surgery. Uh, Julie Freischlag uh, is someone known around the world for uh, her extraordinary leadership uh, achievements um, in surgery and in the business of surgery. Uh, amongst the many things that she has achieved over um, a stellar career as a vascular surgeon, um, specializing, for example, in thoracic outlet syndrome, um, God bless you, Julie, for doing that, um, are things such as um, president of the American College of Surgeons, um, the chair of surgery in Johns Hopkins, um, and she currently serves as um, a healthcare uh, system leader in Wake Forest um, in uh, North Carolina. Um, she has an extraordinary academic career, over 300 publications. Is there nothing this woman cannot do? Perhaps um, her biggest um, passion over the years, um, at least in recent years, has been um, the issues over diversity and inclusion. And uh, I, I certainly want to ask her how she has seen uh, what's happened uh, in terms of changes um, uh, over her career um, and what the future looks like for younger surgeons um, entering um, a new life uh, or a new journey. Um, so without further ado, uh, let's go ahead and welcome uh, uh, Julie Freischlag. Um, I'm John Monson, and this is Surgeons Lives. Um, so thanks so much for uh, joining um, and uh, willing to have a chat for a few minutes. Um, uh, this is a very low-key um, thing I uh, have started, really, which is called Surgeons Lives, and um, as but the strap line is, you know, stuff that matters, which isn't necessarily the operation or the what everybody thinks is the traditional model. Um, so um, uh, I'm just trying to, um, you know, show that surgeons are a, a multicolored um, uh, entity, really, just rather than their CV. But we normally do start with a little review of um, career and life uh, to date, because it sets the scene and um if if you're happy to I, um I, what i normally ask people is is to just give us a brief a brief life journey starting with the words i was born in which by the way <laughs> does not mean your age it means the location <laughs> okay yeah that's great so i was born in a small town in the midwest uh, decatur illinois um, soybean capital of the world, made high flyer kites, which you probably don't know what those are, but they were those yellow kites. Uh, and my dad was a circulation manager of um, a small newspaper there. Huh. He moved a lot. He moved um, to Carbondale, Illinois when I was um, like two, and then we moved back to Urbana when I was um, seven, and then uh, moved up to um, uh, Chicago, where he became the circulation manager at the Chicago Tribune when I was in high school. So I went to um, three grade schools and three high schools. So I moved a lot and I skipped first grade. So when I 
my older brother was a year ahead of me and I read all his books and, and I talk a lot. So I was a discipline problem. So uh, I skipped first grade and uh, went off to college at the University of Illinois when I was 17. I was gonna be a teacher, but they closed education. My mom was a teacher. She taught uh, elementary school. Um, so I love science. And so I, to be a nurse, you had to leave college and go up to Chicago a year early. And, and I was having way too much fun. So I stayed in and applied to medical school and got an early decision actually at Rush Medical College. And I thought I was gonna be a pediatrician and uh, I did surgery first to get it out of the way and love surgery. and. Because I had, there's no medical people in my family. So then I did rotations as a student and decided I wanted to go to California. They, uh, there was a woman resident just finishing at UCLA. There were very few women um, in those years because I finished medical school in 1980. And I was one of three women in my class at UCLA. And, and I was the only one that finished from that group. I was the sixth woman to finish at UCLA. And ended up going to Sebastian. Then there weren't fellowships. You just said you wanted it, and they gave me the job. And I also negotiated my way out of one of my years of general surgery too. So after uh, uh, seven years, I was Vascar uh, and um, research done and general surgery done. So my first job was in San Diego. Um, I went there because my first husband had a fellowship, and then. Moved back to LA, then got divorced and moved to Milwaukee. And that's where I spent six years with John Town. Uh, I ran the VA surgery and then I was uh, vascular and then I ran the whole thing. And then I went back to UCLA to run the division that trained me. So I was the division chief at UCLA from uh, 98 to 2003. And then I went to Hopkins um, in 2003 to be chair. I started looking at chair jobs and uh, was there for 11 years. And then um, I went out to UC Davis to be the dean and vice chancellor, and uh, they ended up firing my chancellor and uh, having a little political strife because our president was Janet Napolitano and uh, decided that if they fired the person that hired me, that maybe I should look for another job. So I did. So I came to Wake uh, six years ago. I was CEO, and then the dean left. I was dean. I just hired the dean. Uh, so I'm actually CEO of Medical Center. Um, I'm also Chief Academic Officer of Advocate Health because we sort of combine with a large health system. And I'm still um, a Vice uh, a President of uh, Health Affairs for the Wake Forest University. So I spend my time mainly in the academic arena, uh, coordinating uh, that as well as running our $5 billion group here in the Medical Center. Well, I got to tell you, I'm just exhausted listening to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is um, some arranging somewhere between amazing and ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a couple of things, uh, you know, you were you went so fast, I didn't have a chance to to write them down. You, you graduated a year after I graduated from medical school, and yeah, I, I was intrigued by. You know, three women in your year, um, you know, two of whom didn't finish. Um, uh, in my year in medical school, there were a bunch of women in, in our year, in, including my lovely wife. Um, but My med school class was 42% women, but that was unusual here. That was because of our dean, Norm Wag Norma Wagner. Right. At that time, it was about 10% women uh, in the States. Yeah. 
And um, I mean, I'll come back to it in due course. Um, the question as to, you know, how you've seen life for women in medicine and surgery change over the years. Um, but um, in you, you certainly, at least on paper, um, suffered from a bit of wanderlust, as in you moved around. Um, yeah. And, you know, which is sometimes the nature of... Um, uh, it's the nature of surgery sometimes. It's the nature of of successful academics. And, um, you know, you got to go to where the opportunities are. Do you think, um, you know, I had a... my. I had a good friend in England who was a partner of mine when I was chairman there, and his dad worked for Woolworths, actually, and so he was constantly moving around. Um, and when um, when Peter grew up, he decided he didn't want to do that. He wasn't going to move anywhere, and he never did. He never he never moved at all, and it was an elective decision. You moved around a little bit as a kid. Um, which obviously didn't put you off moving around a bit as needed. Yeah. Yeah. And part of it, it was all opportunity, right, to do sure. it. Yeah. I went to the West Coast, I think, when I look back, you know, they, I'd, they had just finished a woman resident there in 1980. So I saw that. Um, and so I think actually that was one of the reasons I went out there to do it. Plus, I got snowed into a hospital for a few days in Chicago and decided I wanted better weather. Um, I was young too, you know, I started my uh, internship at 25 and I was done training at 32. And so I think part of it too is, you know, I was young, I, I, I um, felt that I could do most anything. And then there there was a divorce in there, you know, trying to figure out how to make it work. And, and, uh, and then I met my husband when I was in Milwaukee, actually through a dating service, if you can believe it. Now we've been married 30 years and we've moved quite a bit. He he actually never thought he'd move. Um, but uh, I, I guess part of it, I think the dimension of seeing different healthcare systems have been good. Um, yeah. I also am a pretty big extrovert, so I like people. It's a pretty good investment in the uh, fee for the dating service. Yeah, back then it was pretty cheap. You, had to, you did a video and you had to go in every day. You couldn't do it online. It was the 90s. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was like the actual old-fashioned blind date. <laughs> so, um, if I was to, if you know, if I could pluck out of the ethers um, somebody who was there at the time, um, you know, when did do you think they would have marked you out as someone to watch, um, and and when, you know, or was that evident from day one? What do you think, looking back? Well. Um... I think um, in medical school, you know, my best friend, uh, he went into otolaryngology, and actually, I'm giving grant, I'm giving the medical school graduation talk at Milwaukee next week, and he's there, and and he'll tell you that um, I was pretty outspoken. I think part of it, since I had skipped a grade, and I, and I'm not very tall, and and uh, somehow I'm quite opinionated, and so. I think part of it is that I always would raise my hand to to drive change, and I, and I don't know where that came from. I used to think it was from my dad because he he was sort of a force, but I, I think it was more my mom, but she was an educator, and she said, you know, get your education, and, you know, be the smartest person in the room, and then you can do anything you want. And and even my grandfather, when I skipped to first grade, he. He was a coal miner and he basically said, you know, they're going to tell you you can't do stuff and you're going to tell them you can't, you know, because that was the nature of things. Um, 
I think probably even uh, back in high school, you know, to do it, I, I, I was pretty socially active too. You know, I, I was on homecoming court, you know, I did all that, but then I also had great grades and mm. I never ever felt that that was something you couldn't do both with. I think also I, um, my, my ability to work with groups of people, I think has always been there. So, you know, as you go forward and lead and do things these days, you know, being able to get along with teams is a huge thing to do. Um, and I had two brothers, you know, an older one and a younger one. So I think partly was you just uh, were able to do whatever you wanted to do with um, uh, as long as you move fast and, and you had a good reason. Yeah, it's interesting you say um, that you know you were the you were the one that would put your hand up. You're you know you had a a vivid personality, or you you wanted and you wanted to change things and outspoken all of those words, etc. I was listening to a guy yesterday um, in a totally different field, and um, he's a retired racing driver, but he's been very successful ever since in running various things, and he made a comment that. Um, you don't need to be the loudest voice in the room to succeed. And somebody had said to him once, you know, if you speak quietly and softly, it's <laughs> it makes other people shut up to listen to you because they have to listen. They can't hear what you're saying. And that's that's not me, and it's clearly not you. Yeah. Um, but it's an interesting um, it's an interesting comment, and you know, I'm sure. I mean, you and I have both seen people over the years who fit that model. They, you know, they sit quietly, they say nothing. Everybody's wondering what they're thinking, and uh, you know, an old mentor of mine said to me, you know, if you say nothing, everyone thinks you're a genius. You know, because <laughs> <laughs> you open your mouth and you prove them wrong, right? To do it exactly, but you know, the the, the successful people, you know, uh, assimilate all the information for the last fifty okay. minutes and then come up with the summary that everyone has worked out. But it's the only thing you said, so they think you're a genius, etc. Um, well, I listen really well, and I remember everything. I, I have an incredible, I remember when you said it, how you said it, you know, where we bought stuff, all that kind of stuff. And I did have, I have a photographic memory. It's not as vivid as when I was younger. So I actually can remember where I read things and where I was to do it. So wow. I do think I, I've learned to listen a lot more as, you know, surgeons are pretty outspoken as you run your ORs and, and make decisions. But in my new roles, you know, you really have to listen to others that have expertise, you know, such as yeah. human resources and lawyers and people that you don't know that thing to. And then setting up a team that actually tells you stuff, you know, I, I think uh, with some of this um, new partnership, we're seeing leaders that uh, people still fear a little bit or they don't want to challenge. And I think the best thing about academic medicine is we're constantly challenging what we do, how we do it, where we do it. You know, students, we allow them to speak up and talk to us. I think that as a leader, making sure people know they can say stuff is really important. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, one of the great things of your career and my career is that you meet the full spectrum of of uh, of people, you know, the, the way they manage things and, and yet are, are equally successful. Um, yeah. You know, one of my one of my oldest friends in surgery um, from the 1980s when I first met him when he was a BJS traveling fellow 
Yes. Was one Courtney Townsend. I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I I say to Courtney all the time, how on earth did you succeed politically? You know, because you know he's he's from Paris, Texas, um, yeah. through and through. You know, yeah. and um, and um, I, I think it's because what you see is authentic. Yes. Um, you know, it's and he is an example of someone who doesn't say much till the end. You know, he was secretary of the uh, board um, of the American College of Surgeons, and the number of times he spoke, I can sort of count on one hand, but when he did, it was pretty vibrant. And his silence sometimes was um, uh, very powerful as well, too. Plus, you know, he uh, hung out with his boss, who was quite noisy, you know, so also I think it depends on who you partner with, you know, yeah. if you're someone that um, yeah. no, has that's, it. That's yeah. for sure. When you look back, um, did you have um, people who you would identify now or even then and now as specific mentors? And, and if so, how did you get them? Yeah, you know, I'm not even sure I knew the word mentor, mm -hmm. you know, back when we started. You know, the, I did surgery and, and the chief resident or the senior resident, then my chief resident was a guy named Tom Witt. And, and he ended up being a breast surgeon in Chicago. And he was, that's when you had 50 or 60 patients in the hospital and you would do flip rounds. You'd be on cards figuring out who was in hospital when as a student or an intern and you go flying around to find them. And he just was amazing and that's when we also ran three or four rooms he was a good clinician and he was so kind I think that there was the piece that he was so kind and and also uh, Steve Economo was um, mm -hmm. a surgeon there with us um, and I ended up training with his son and and I think they saw the possibility because I don't think and, and our intern we had a woman intern Roseanne Krinsky who was very small smaller than me and her husband was a medicine resident and, and so that was interesting and that was per chance, right, to see it. Uh, but at UCLA, it was really Ron Busatil. I was in his research lab. You know, he he actually, we just had a fest trip for him. And he, he said I was the best resident he ever trained, but he never told me. He goes, back then, they never did. You know, no, just, no. And I gave a lot of rabbits appendicitis and studied neutrophils and did the cases. And, and Westmore, too, was very helpful, making sure that I got trained well. They didn't really talk a lot about leadership or running teams or that it was mainly making sure you were excellent clinically to go forward um, yeah. so they were probably the best ones and then as I went through to to be a chair of surgery you know the dean at Hopkins Ed uh, Miller was just amazing he wanted to change surgery I was the only woman chair there for 11 years it was 2003 it was a crazy time and he really uh, backed me you know he Sometimes he would tell me I was doing it wrong. He was a great big man, six foot six. So he would sometimes thunder his opinion with me, but overall mainly let me do it my way. And and understood that I was uh, driven to do the right thing no matter what. So it was mainly men. There weren't any women around. There were no. a few surgeons around that I admired, um, you know, uh, Patty Newman and Olga Johnson, but they were not my day-to-day -day people. Yeah. I, a lot of time now talking to a lot of women surgeons around the country as they negotiate jobs or figure out what they want to do. But back then, that 
there, that wasn't done. You just sort of figured it out your way. Yeah, and, and you know, I've said to several people that I've interviewed or and they've said to me um, that, you know, this conversation that we're having today would never have happened 25 years ago because, you know, with this type of sort of touchy-feely conversation was considered to be a sign of weakness, you know, yeah. and uh, and that sort of stuff, you know, and um, you should be working until you fell over and, you know, and... and you know that sort of that sort of thing. So well, as, as, every other night when I train, I mean, yeah, for yeah, sure, it's, yeah, it's a different thing, and and there wasn't much backup. We thought we did it the right way. I mean, it was just a different time, and they really right. were making you resilient. And most people turned out okay, but a handful did not. Yeah, it's a it's um it's a stress system. You know, it it um exposes um, and this is not meant to be. Pejorative in any way, but I, you know, I've sadly and tragically seen a, a number of suicides over the year, um, years, and you know, the easy thing is to blame blame the job if you like, and um, you know, the residency or whatever it might be, and of course, it's it's not really. It's it's somebody who has a mental health issue who finds themselves in a circumstance that is stressful and not nurturing. Um, and, you know, in that sense, it's the job, but, you know, it's not that the job made you kill yourself, you know, I mean, there's... In the wrong so, spot, the wrong time. Yeah. So um, now that you mention it, um, as, as, as I said to you when we bumped into each other at, at the college at the Dublin at the Irish reception, you know, Julie Freischlag became known outside of vascular surgery to the wider, wider world when you took that job and everyone remembers where they were when they heard. Um, yeah. And so you were 11 years there. Um, you um, you did something that everybody tells you not to do, which is to follow the legend. You know, you're meant to be the person who follows the person who follows the legend. Um um, summarize that experience for, for me. I mean, it, it was, you know, now you're distant from it. It was 11 years. So it obviously wasn't, um, uh, it wasn't a one and done, if you like. I mean, there was a good a decade of your life and more. Yeah. Well, you know, I didn't really know John Cameron. I had actually interviewed there for the Vascar position a few years ahead. And, but I already had a Vascar uh, position and, and I actually had told the, the um, business uh, manager, I had told John that and I really wasn't going to, you always look at the Hopkins job because it's a great job, but I said, I'm not moving until I'm chair to make that happen. Um, John Cameron, you know, really wanted to orchestrate the whole succession planning like most everybody does. And yeah. Keith Lillimall is a really great guy. Um, but the whole search committee, everybody wanted a change in surgery. And years later, you know, Keith actually talked about it when he gave a presidential address saying, this is what should happen. Part of it is his daughter's a surgeon. So I think he actually watched it through her eyes for a bit. So the first few years were really hard because, you know, he was there. He was still operating. Um, he wasn't real happy. Keith left, left within the first year to go be chaired in Indiana. But I was able, you know, it was 2003 to 2008, so before the financial collapse, we had a lot of money. I hired 100 surgeons. We were able to wow. increase our research. So the culture change really uh, slowly but surely, we started doing some strategic planning, 
when you're looking at goal setting, all kinds of interesting things to, to make it work. And uh, partly uh, I just listened, you know, that my first day I just had interns come in and talk to me and, and look at who they wanted to be. And every Monday I would meet with, you know, either interns, twos or threes or fours at 6.30 and just listen to them. And I did that for 11 years, you know, what's going on, where are you going? And I initially operated and took call for the first five years or so. And then I really focused on thoracic outlet, but I was in the OR every week and, and really reorganized how we focused our attention, how we taught and trained and just did it pretty methodical. Part of it was just getting everybody's trust, you know, that you weren't there to condemn when they came to look at the residency program. I said, we don't have to tell them what's wrong, but we have to tell them what we're gonna do that's right. And um, actually there, I had a couple of helping things that it was, I showed up, it was the ADR week, work week, it was timeouts in the OR. And then also wait, it was all about RBUs, which nobody had heard. So they all thought it was my idea and not the system. <laughs> and so uh, interesting, we actually got cited in medicine um, for a resident working too many hours. Uh, so they came to the institution. So we really had to forcefully start the 80 hours, which I'm not sure we would have done without that yeah. citation to do that. Sure. Um, yeah. time we had, you know, a calamity. I mean, we had two or three major crazy events, you know, just making sure you were transparent about them and talked about them and got a lot of input was really important. And then to get friendships with all the other chairs as well. Mm -hmm. um, I also had a seven-year-old when I moved there, you know, so I was raising a seven-year-old. Um, and so he ended up, that's, he did all his uh, schooling in um, Baltimore. And that's the longest I've ever lived anywhere uh, is there 11 years. And he went through school and, and, uh, my husband at that time stopped working to be home with him. So I was trying to raise a kid also. And so I think that actually people watched me raising my son as well as running that. And I think that actually made me real. And so mm. they realized that, you know, I was balancing uh, and we did a lot. I actually got a, a, a million dollars for cultural change. That was part of my deal. And, and it was mainly for parties. You know, we had, a, they still have a holiday party at the, um, at the ball at the aquarium every year and I gave out cash prizes to the residents. We had a raffle. Um the first one we had, I had everybody vote for core values and we had garbage cans that you know said excellence and trust and and um and, and so everybody got to vote. If you voted you got to be in the raffle to win money. So of course everybody voted to make that happen. And that's how we got our core values. So everybody looked forward to that party. We had some picnics. They had football games and and, and um, softball games that, that we continued to do. But the holiday party was probably the the biggest thing that made it happen. So now I have to ask you, sitting in the uh, chair that you're sitting in at the moment, um, um, would the request for a million dollars for parties be viewed upon kindly by Dr. Freischlag? Well, we didn't call it parties. We called it culture <laughs> change. Yeah, we called it culture change. Yeah. It was a really flexible budget is what we would call <laughs> Yes, well. And strategic planning. I, nowadays, I would put it under strategic planning is what I would do, which is exactly what we did over time. Yeah. Well, you better hope that the folks in um, 
Uh, and um, your organization don't hear this bit of the uh, talk, you know, because they'll be <laughs> knocking on your door for the <laughs> for yeah. the party money. Especially these days, they have to do it. So I said we'd discuss some, uh, you know, the the uh, the changing um, culture um, in terms of. But now, again, you know, the other thing that was never mentioned, nobody knew the term was diversity and inclusion at the beginning, but now that's what we call it. And, you know, you can throw in on top of that um, things such as Me Too movement and one thing or another. Um, I mean, I, it goes without saying that the world is, um, surgical world, the medical world, and probably the world is a little um, more accommodating for women um, in the workplace than was the case 20, 30 years ago. But in, specifically in surgery, how far do you think we are down that journey? Are we in the first three steps or are we 80%? Or what do you think? Well, it, it was interesting. When I went to Hopkins, we, you know, the whole system didn't have a maternity policy. I think they just got one a few years ago. I mean, so... The, there was no maternity policy when I was at UC Davis. It was you know twelve weeks you know to do it. So it depends on what system you're in. And we actually in installed our own six week maternity policy for everybody, residents and faculty, and two weeks for guys or partners. Um, and it was funny that the guys would go home and come back within a day or two because they didn't want to be home. Mother in laws were there and that, so they took it later to make it happen. Yeah. And here we. Yeah. We actually did a policy too, whether you adopt or whether you um, are same sex. And, and actually, the people that hurt the most, I think, actually are the staff. You know, they they don't have the resources, and they have the same lack of policy too. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, lactation rooms and yeah. and things which uh, didn't exist. Now, I I was an in vitro mom. I've written about it, so I I went through in vitro and. And actually, the third time I actually went told my partner so I could go home because the first time I had to do a ruptured aneurysm the day I had my eggs implanted, so that didn't work out so well. So my my group actually really feel that they were responsible for my son to be born. And then I took about 11 weeks off because I was older and uh, had a little bit of um, heart complications and things like that. So I sort of lived and breathed it and, and had great daycare across the street. So um and my husband worked till he was um, three. Then we moved to LA and he worked less. But, you know, somebody needs to be around to help yeah. whether it's hired or not. Mm. I, I think everybody's got a different flavor of what they think they need help with. And, and now I think we have partners, you know, that are both are real busy. There's so many dual couples now because yes. there's so many women in med school. And so... That I think is the last frontier is where they're both busy. I've got quite a few very busy couples here that are, you know, and then they have four kids, you know, trying to make it. And then what if somebody needs some special attention? I think that's hard. So I think I think we're if you look at the number of women uh, going into surgery, uh, especially general surgery, and then this new vascular zero five, it's markedly increased. If you yeah. look at the number yeah. of fifty percent and. And actually the zero five vascular is at least half women. And then we see women leaders, which help, you know, I was the only woman vascular division chief when, at UCLA in the whole country during that time. And I was only the fourth woman chair. And now we have 
about 30 women chairs, still yeah. not that many women deans. I just hired a woman dean because I've got too much on my plate. And so, uh, but there's still like about 30 women deans, but um, now there's more women vascular division chiefs, but the guys won't give it up. I mean, they love their job. And and probably the, the answer to this is really term limits. You know, Mayo Clinic yes. does that, Canada does it. Um, Many European countries do it, you know, two five-year terms. And and frankly, after 11 years at Hopkins, you know, everything, then you have to redo everything again. So it's probably time to go do something else. Um, and, and I, you know, just on the term limit thing, you know, I was I was a chair for 15 years and in a you know a pretty large department. And I'm pretty sure I was not on the top of my game for all 15 years, you know, yeah. I think maybe 12. Um, I was good. And I, you know, I, number one, so that's number one. And number two, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, give someone else a chance. Oh, absolutely. And there's always something to do, just like people don't like to resign off of editorial work. I've yeah. always, I'm on the JAMA Oversight Committee. That's where I was the last two days looking at the JAMA journals, you know, because I was an editor for 10 years. Yeah. There's always yeah. something to do. So, I think we've done really well. The thing I think I've found that when I want to make a decision, if I put everybody in the room that looks just like me, we make a really bad decision. Yeah. So what you want is whatever you look like, make sure your team looks different. And, and right now, the biggest thing I'm focusing on is youth. You know, if you put a bunch of old people in a room, you know, we, we come up with what it used to be. You know, you need to put younger people on your teams and, and also certainly women and people of color, and also in surgery, people that train different. You know, when I first went to Hopkins, certainly the first time we did recruiting, because I, I just had signed, but I wasn't quite there yet. So we were doing recruiting in January, February, because I took a couple months off to move my family there. And it was charts, and you know, we had piles of charts. Yeah. And, and, and we only looked at people from like five schools, you know, from Mass General, from yeah. Emory from Vanderbilt and I was like is, do you think there's anybody good from Kansas or from University of California no you know and so the biggest diversity I did initially was let's look at kids maybe from the west coast or look at kids that um, we from Kansas you know or our other places and, and diversity or from Rush where I was to do it so the diversity initially came from there and then we had uh, a bunch of preliminary residents and they were mainly kids that hadn't matched mainly because they had a personality problem like either plastics and that personality problem didn't go away so we started taking international graduates who yeah. were amazing but not from a u.s med school so they would come in as prelims and it, it helped our diversity they were terribly motivated and most times you know if they were good we had people quit you know surgery residents quit one every other year or so so many of them one of the head pancreatic surgeons now at hopkins is jin he who was fully trained in china and came to us and he's incredible to do it and and i have a, a jonathan bats a vascular surgeon in um missouri now and he actually came to us uh, also he wrote an article about us you know he only had one suitcase she interviewed me gave me my job and and he had come to us um, uh, from Singapore, you know, to yeah, do it. Yeah. Now he's an amazing surgeon. So I think adding those few things really made us uh, so much better. And, and I just basically said, let's look at a couple other schools, you know, to do it. Let's 
Um, and, and we did focus on integrating more women at the beginning, but then the women started being cut up to the top by criteria without having to mention it. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest thing still is uh, people of color. You know, I think that's yeah. still hard. I have uh, I have a college kid that trails me every year here from Wake Forest, and and this year it's a young uh, African American man, and, and and he wants to be a plastic surgeon. And the first one I did just matched at UCSF in surgery. He wants to be a heart surgeon, but when he started work with me in 2017. He had no idea what he wanted to do. You know, his family had nothing, and he ended up at Case, and now he's going to be a surgeon. It's one person at a time, you know. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the attention I got from Steve Economo and when I was training in Ron Busitel. Um, I think we've done pretty well, but, you know, the thing about surgeons that's so funny is, you know, on Friday afternoon, which is today, when all hell breaks loose this afternoon, and there's 14 cases to do, yeah. and everybody gets a field promotion. If you're around, you're going to get to do anything you want. because yeah. We don't care what you look like. I mean, are you breathing? Can you push the bed? Can you close that wound? Whatever you got, I need your help. So I actually think we uh, allow people to rise to the occasion just because of the nature of our business versus um, yeah. looking at your yeah. CV are making sure I know what year you are, you know, to do it. So I, yeah, I do think we're inclusive under duress. And then we actually realize we can be inclusive during calm as well. Yeah. And it's, it's, it takes, uh, you know, some places never had cultural exclusivity and, you know, I, I remember a good colleague of mine in, in England who became a chair of surgery, but he was from the North of England. And the north and England, as you know, is very divided between the north and south. Um, and he, he was from Newcastle, and he, he 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 will tell you that he has no idea how, but he got an interview for medical school in Barts in Saint Bartholomew's. Um, and the first two interviewers grilled him as to which member of his family had been in Barts. And he said, well, no. Um, said, well, you're, what about your mother? Um, is she in Barnes? And then the guy said to him, um, well, who's been in Barnes? And he said, nobody. So he said, um, <laughs> well, he said, he, the guy said to him, so what does your father do exactly? And he said, he's, he's a painter. And he said, oh, really? Um, he said, um, is he portrait or landscape in style? And he said, no, he, he's uh, battleships. He says he works in the shipyards. And he said uh, he's certain his rejection letter was on the same train as he was on back to Newcastle. <laughs> you know, that sort of stuff went on for years. And when I was in Imperial in London, we always took... Um, a nice young boy from the Welsh Valleys um, who was good at playing rugby because of the Hospitals Cup. Um, there was London had this enormous tournament for medical schools playing rugby. And so Mary's St. Mary's had a link with the Welsh Valleys. It was the mining. All the patients used to come from Wales and we always took a, a rugby. It didn't matter whether the guy was thick as two planks, you know, if he was good at rugby, you know, he was a shoe in. <laughs> so, so now the flip side of that, of course, is we have, an, um, you know, now we have 
you know the the, the concept of mantles you know um um and i guess that's inevitable isn't it i mean you've got to you've got to you know try extra hard to change culture um but it's it's now a little challenging to have conversations in that space um are you um are you confident or happy that we're going to navigate through that or do we just have to bash our way through to make sure that decades and decades of of bad behavior is just overcome yeah i think we we've done quite a bit here when it's all about example right to do it and here i hired 11 chairs since I've been here and six are women, you know, yeah. to do, there are people that are doing it that way. We also do a lot. We, we've been, uh, you know, the thing with George Floyd and the whole uh, racial issue, you know, I never used to speak about race because I'm white. You know, I, I didn't think yeah. I had to yeah. say, and we've actually started some bystander training courses here. So if someone says something really stupid, which frequently is in the operating room, I mean, people think it is a sanctuary and you can say or do anything and say, I'm trying to save my patient where yeah. it's not. And it, it, and that's why, you know, things that they say to nurses or um, things they say to students and even things that nurses say to students are terrible. So teaching people to call it out in a way that's comfortable to saying, I'm sure you didn't mean to, say something that rude and, and 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 would you repeat what you just said and of course never, nobody ever does but i think learning how to be uh, frustrated and and stressed at the same time not bashing the person next to you you know to yeah. do it and then um i must admit even though i came from downstate illinois which was you know my high school was all white except for sure black kids that were in the deaf ed class I mean that's all we saw but when I went back to get a high school award you know it's now it's very different you know there's all sorts of underrepresented there's uh, many Hispanics there's many Eastern European and Russian I mean it's the new kids are coming up with all sorts of diversity to do unless you're poor and then I think you have a, a, a situation that's much more complicated to do it but I, I think we're getting there. I think part of it, what I worry about so much, I mean, every day there's something crazy, you know, this on TV and, and how people speak out and you just listen to this and you just go, I can't believe people can behave and act like that. So the the social media and the, the leaders that we've seen have just been absolutely, no matter where your politics are, have been absolutely unforgivable about what people yeah. say and do and and, and so I think making sure you set a good example, uh, calling out things that are not good. And then I do think the new generation uh, knows nothing but women leaders, yeah. uh, uh, people of color, they're, they're in their classrooms, especially once they get to med school. We have uh, COVID-19. I always say, what has COVID-19 done for you lately? You know, with virtual interviews, we were able to get a much more diverse medical school mm-hmm. class because not everybody would travel, but I do think virtual interviews are fairer for interviews, even though all of us would prefer to have them in person. You know, those oral exams we used to take in hotel rooms with people yelling at us. I mean, I did my last exam. I did do virtual exams. I mean, the examinees are so much more relaxed because they're not breathing your air. And and I, I was given, I gave, I was on the board at age 42. So I gave 23 years of boards 
And I made a guy cry. I mean, I kept asking him question after question. He didn't know any answer. And then my associate examiner said, he's crying. And I'm, I looked at him, I'm really sorry, but you don't know the answers. I mean, it's not my fault. You're, you're stupid. You know, but so, you know, I've, I've known this pretty tough too, but that was the nature of who we are. Oh yeah, it was. I I think we're better. I mean, I I still have incidents where people say and do stupid things, you know. But overall, I think the new generation is uh, uh, is so used to the room being uh, diverse that if it's not, they notice. And a little, you know, I mean, the very first time I sat on the fellowship exams as an examiner in the Royal College on the other side of the Atlantic, I was paired with a senior examiner, of course, for guidance and wisdom. And uh, I vividly remember we examined this young man who was wearing a blazer and slacks and, you know, very nicely turned out and he was, seemed quite appropriate and his questions were all correct and all that sort of stuff. And my I, at the end of the, when the bell rang, uh, I turned to my colleague, you know, and he said, um, well, we'll fail him. And I, I said, oh, um, what, uh, oh sorry. And yeah. he said, um, no suit, thin end of the wedge. <laughs> I had a guy once too, the guy, we were interviewing a kid with a pink shirt on and, and Ken Ramming said, we can't hire him. You know, yeah. <laughs> we exactly exactly so and and i was asked too i was asked uh are you getting married and uh how many kids you're gonna have you were just like why my answer was i have no idea it was the answer but and actually my favorite one was when you had to go do the interview for the american college of surgeons you know they I, i think they still do it in person so i show up and there's a couple guys from ucla there and the guy running the interview is is Asian. I'm pretty sure he was from Cambodia. And so he's asking me questions about the and the last question. He looks at me and he goes, I asked you one quest, personal question, and I probably should have said no. And he goes, how do you get your housework done? And of course, my guys just looked at me and I said, oh, I'm just, I'm very organized. So I did end up writing a letter to the college. So as I walked out, the next person coming in was a pregnant woman. And I said, you're going to have to explain that. that, that <laughs> happened. And I wrote back saying, I'm sure they didn't ask. And, and the guy was just curious. I think he he just wanted yeah, to yeah, yeah, sure. he was curious, but totally. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, he would just never have assumed that anyone else would do the housework. You know, I mean, <laughs> it, it was just a thoughtless thing. So um, what happens, I mean, I, I, I know this is a silly question because clearly you do not switch the light off and you do not go home um, because of all the work you're doing. But um, what about outside of work? Um, um, what um, what uh, makes gives you fun and relaxation? Yeah. Well, that's why my husband's so great. So I have an endless pool. So I swim in a pool with the current. I've had one. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I had one in my house in Milwaukee. Him and my husband and I walk all the time. We have a new little dog, so that's fun. I I read a lot. I read fiction. I read uh, novels. I read self-help. COVID made me not read so much, but I'm always reading. I bet I read eight books a month. You know, just love to read fiction. I'm also a crafter, so I make things. So I sew, I craft. My brother's a real good painter, and I'm not a real good painter, 
but I craft things, make things. I make things for the people that work with me. I make things for, I have four grandkids with my stepkids. So I make them stuff as well too. So I'm always sewing, making things uh, work. My mother did that. So I think that was And we love to travel. Luckily, we're going to get to travel a little bit more, but we love to travel. We don't like going the same place over and over. We've had a couple houses down in Hilton Head and stuff. And after COVID, we decided we couldn't retire there. So we like going somewhere different all the time. We're headed to Portugal for a meeting and staying a few days. And I'm finally getting to the Galapagos. I was supposed to go uh, in 2020. So you know what happened to that. But yeah. So we're going this summer. And then I have a son um, who likes traveling with us and his wife, which we're not quite sure why they do, but they do. And so uh, he's going to be 28. So we're going with them this summer. So taking those trips have been nice. And um, we just took the channel last summer to down to Paris from London. And yeah, yeah. I'd never been to Paris. I had been once years ago. So yeah. traveling is, is, is nice to come back now that you really, I really feel like, uh, COVID isn't going to attack me every minute I walk out. So no, I- no, yeah. Well, if your if your son is anything like my kids, I'm sure it's the um, uh, the uh, financial support he gets traveling with you that <laughs> is is a, is quite a significant factor. Yeah, so yeah. you you use the word there um, retirement. Um, yeah. You don't look like somebody who's. Um, I uh, got a clock on the wall um, down to retirement. So what does that look like for you? And, you know, what's the thinking as in, you know, I've I've interviewed um, a number of people who clearly have no intention of retiring ever. Um, and, um, you know, I interviewed a good friend of mine, a guy called Robbie Madoff, who was a colorectal surgeon in Minneapolis for many years similar age to us and he literally just walked out and moved back to Brooklyn to be with his kids you know um yeah well my husband's five years older than me uh uh but um and and he's asked sort of because he's 73 and he he lost his brother a couple years ago to cancer and one of his best friends died this year of amyloidosis and and that was really hard and so he sort of looked at me and said, when are we done? He knows I need something to do. Yeah. Um, but And we love living here. Um, so we are probably uh, in a year or two, um, I'm, we're going to move by my son in Potomac. We bought a house up there. And uh, I am actually just got asked to be chair-elect of the board of um, uh, AAMC, which I, I wasn't planning to have a plan on quitting. And I'm also very, still very busy with Aga Khan. I'm on the board of trustees who run their health science thing. So I think I'll, I'll work with the AAMC. I also am a really good um, uh, coach and mentor. Um, Carlos Pellegrini is doing that a little bit. And, mm. and I do that anyway to make it happen. Yeah. Always connected. I, I do I do still operate you know I do thoracic outlet surgery and I and I operate probably two or three times a month and, and I'm real good at it but now I think two or three of my partners here and many across the country so you know they don't need me to do this surgery I, I like taking care of patients so that's good that'll probably be the hardest I've really cut down my surgical uh, piece but I still enjoy patient care you know to do it so um 
But I, I think, you know, I'm 68, you know, and, and uh, my son will probably have a kid in the next year or two. Um, and my other grandkids are on the West Coast. We don't see them as often. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the other thing is, you know, you need to, now that COVID has interrupted all our lives, you know, um, the travel we want to do, we need to get done soon, you know, because yeah. my husband's 73. Um, mm-hmm. So I do think in the next five years to make that happen. And hopefully you'll get your help. I, I certainly don't want to get sick here at work. I, I have three of my chairs who have gotten cancer since I've been here. And uh, and one um, looks like, you know, it's, it's unremitting. One had to have a bone marrow transplant. Oof. One had a peritoneal mesothelioma. Oof. I've looked at the three of them and, and watching what they're doing. And, yeah. uh, and, and one's a surgeon, you know, to do it. And, and I... You know, tomorrow you and I could wake up and something could be wrong. <laughs> oh, so, for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so I think um, I'm really ready. You know, I, I think also I've trained up so many amazing people that I actually think that they can go do this. And and uh, and they, I, this new dean I hired, she's got different ideas than me. And I found myself sort of wanting to tell her she's crazy. But then <laughs> I, I'm out of my nobody told me that so shut up julie let her she's right you know she's a woman of color she's an internist she's really smart and i need to let her make her own mistakes and oh, do for it sure right. yeah. Yeah. and get out of her way <laughs> and you know there's one thing you know I, I was taught years ago in when i was working in imperial you know and it certainly applies to people like you and me with slightly odd names that, you know, six months after you leave, they won't remember how you spelt your name. Um, um, and, and they, you also want to leave where they can say you did great things. And if asked, they would like you to come back uh, and they don't have the party after you leave, you know, they have yeah. to go, you know, and, and, and I've moved so many places, you know, I've left many places and they all remember me. But they've moved on and done just fine to do it. And, and I think part of it is, um, I think the biggest thing right now is seeing some of our friends die and get sick. And, and you know, if you, we had a few in your 40s and 50s that were unlucky. And then you had about 20 years that everybody was okay. And now we're going to see, we're going to see that. And so I think part of that has made it real. Yeah, that we sure. want to so, make that. Um, so, how would you like to be remembered and how do you think you will be remembered? I, I've always want to be remembered as a, a really good surgeon, not only technically, but there for my patients and, and mm-hmm. good teacher, you know, to do it. And then um, my greatest joy is bringing on the next generation. If I were to tell you why my mother did that as a teacher and uh, I have so many of my trainees now, you know, in Hopkins, I started in 2003. So here we are 20 years later and you see them all out there being chairs. They're excellent surgeons. They're rising to leadership in our societies. And there's nothing better than watching them accomplish things I never could. And that you knew them when, you know, you gave them the inspiration and the uh, aspiration you know, to, to, to really um, aspire to to go do that, and yeah. and, and uh, the innovation piece is just amazing. So that's what I want to be known for. Not only surgeons, but even my team were non-surgeons that I allowed us to do things better as a team 
um, made things better than when we showed up and have fun along the way. Any but, regrets? No, I wish I had had a kids a little earlier. I, you know, I wish I had had a daughter, but I never yeah. did. But no, the things that happen bad, it, it puts you into the place you're supposed to be. Sure, you know? sure. I was divorced. I moved around. You know, I didn't do everything. I think that's also being a surgeon, right? Sometimes you have a complication, you know, and, and you just have to do your best to get on yeah. the other side. Life is a complication. You know? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> um, I'll do on that one. <laughs> exactly. So on that um, profound note, uh, Julia, I just want to thank you again for um, for being uh, for taking some uh, such uh, long time with me today, and for, oh, and for it's been a fascinating um, story, and um, it'll come out in a few weeks, and no doubt uh, it'll make you even more famous um, than you are already. I doubt it very much, but. Uh, <laughs>